0: Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. This episode is the first in a mini series in which we speak to investment managers about how they think regarding compounding as it relates to their portfolios and to building an investment firm that gets more valuable over time. My guests on the show today are Heather Beatty and Robin Collinar, the respective founder and portfolio manager of Scope4 Capital. After a number of years working in business development at large investment firms, Heather started Scope4, a climate impact-focused firm, to take advantage of the investment opportunities associated with companies that are building impactful climate solutions. Robin has 30 years of experience in money management and has recently joined the firm to implement the Scope4 process and vision. In this extensive conversation, we discussed the founding of Scope 4 and the investment opportunity set, the difference between investing for impact versus what has come to be known ESG, the intersection between a company that compounds over time and one that is making a positive impact on the climate, how Robin and Heather narrowed down the universe of companies, and how to avoid paying too high a price for the companies that are likely to have the most positive impact. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Heather Beatty and Robin Collinar of Scope 4 Capital. We're trying something new with this podcast, so our traditional question about a pivotal moment is not as relevant. But I'm interested in why you decided to start Scope 4, given the number of investment strategies there are in the world right now, and in understanding why you think the return profile is potentially so compelling.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ben. So I'm going to answer your second question first. So um, you know, what we're focused on at Scope 4 is decarbonization, and oftentimes we link it to uh, the digitization of our economy. It's, it's wide-reaching. It has massive implications. It's very much already underway. And even just over the course of the last uh, few years, the commitments that I've made to net zero have dramatically accelerated Um, Just to give you a couple examples of that, so today, over 4,000 public companies have committed to net zero, which is up from under 3,000 companies just literally two years ago. Um, Also, over 70 countries have committed to net zero, and that represents 90% of global emissions, and that, um, as you probably know, includes the United States, the EU, China, and we've seen a ton of policy and, and stimulus uh, just over the course of even the last year to get that underway. And then when you just think about the investment community, um, asset owners that represent over $3 trillion have committed to transitioning uh, their portfolios to accommodate net zero. And so to actually achieve that, it's going to require wholesale, complete systemic and infrastructure change. And... Um, what we're going to need to spend is actually equivalent to about three and a half trillion dollars on a per annum basis. Or just to give you a sense, it's almost three percent in global GDP. So um, that's that's huge from an investment opportunity standpoint. And I think a lot of times um, when people think about climate change, all they think about really is um, the energy transition, and that's that is a huge piece of it. Um, but it also involves scale and uh, scaling things like electrification. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about climate tech. And so incorporating technology into industrial and chemical process, rethinking how we're, um, you know, structuring buildings. It's also about supply chain transparency. So, so there's, there, there are huge um, uh, tailwinds for us in decarbonization specifically. And then, yeah, there are a lot of investment strategies out there. So, um, even just again over the course of the last couple of years, you've seen a ton of climate labeled strategies that have come to market. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that 80% um, of those strategies have just been, uh, repurposed. And so they weren't actually um, built to accommodate climate. They're just kind of repurposed. And so, the majority of those are just focused on the transition, and that's why you, you're going to see some of the Microsofts and the Apples um, in those portfolios. It's because those two companies, in addition to a ton of large global companies, have actually transitioned. But what what we're doing is we're investing in the beneficiaries of decarbonization, or you know what we like to often call the picks and the shovels. Um, and so it's it's the companies that um, whose business models reflect climate solutions or, or the mitigation piece of it. And that's what's going to actually drive this economic shift.
0: And ESG has become, a, you know, a, a very popular topic, both in terms of, you know, the critics of it and the proponents of it. So I'm trying to understand from your perspective what the difference is between decarbonization impact investing like you're focusing on yes. the markets versus what has traditionally or, or or has now come to be known as ESG investing.
1: Yeah, I would um I would say ESG is yeah you know, we you're right we've seen a backlash especially this last just 12 months and um but I ESG to me is more of a framework that has a, a ton of data points and oftentimes Um, I think what people are kind of frustrated or questioning is you'll see a a company like a tobacco company having a a higher ESG score than like a Tesla. And, and, you know, there's a lot of head scratching about what ESG even means because I think it's gotten so convoluted. Um, But but I think as a framework, it can be applied at the front of the process as a screening tool, can be applied at the back of the process as a risk tool or all throughout the process um, to any kind of strategy. What we're focused on is decarbonization as an objective. And so how we define impact is through emission reduction potential. So, um, are these companies lowering emissions globally? And, and that's what we're focused on. Um, I would also say that not all impact investments are created equal and that sometimes they can be concessionary and they're, and that's intentional. Um, and, and there, there's a, there's a wide range of different types of investors that want to be values aligned and invest in something that sort of meets their, their values. And that could be through you know, social justice or agriculture, any number of different things. Um, that's not what we're doing. We're not focused on a concessionary impact investor or actually merging the two and saying, hey, this company is lowering emissions and also uh, we're linking it to stock price appreciation. So that climate solution is actually a catalyst for profitability.
0: Maybe you could expand on that a little bit in terms of there's some frameworks out there, some ESG rating frameworks that are risk based. Like they look at the companies and say, these are the companies at least that are at least risk of of climate change. Right. As opposed to an impact focused strategy, someone who benefits from that. So maybe talk a little bit about how how a firm structured around that impact um, side versus the risk management side will operate versus you know more of a I guess uh, I guess I think it's MSCI the way they they think about um, the 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 ESG space and 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 ratings.
1: Yeah, so um so I was just talking with this um about this with Robin and we think that climate risk um it it is about physical risk and it's about transition risk. Um, oftentimes, uh, MSCI is focused on that, and and so are we, um, but we think it's also just kind of tough to uh, quantify the risk of climate. If you just think about it, impact, it impacts literally all sectors, all companies, all countries, and it's hard to measure the rate of change of how this is even happening. If you just look at recently, all these insurance companies are having a tough time in 2023 because there have been crazy swings in temperature. You know, how are we going to price that in from a risk perspective? I um, mean, if they can't do it, I think, I think it's, I think it's really challenging to do that. Um, and so that's why we also want to quantify the opportunity of that or of the mitigation and adaptation of what's coming down the pike. Um, so I think, I think, uh, that, you know, that's something that MSCI is not focused on, which is the opportunity piece and quantifying that. Um, we could also talk about, I don't know if you want to talk about this now, but, you know, uh, scope one and two and three emissions and how companies are, uh, measuring that and then how that filters in through MSCI and whether or not, you know, that matters or if it's, or if it's even valid. And I think that's also... A question mark that investors have as it relates to to climate specifically.
0: Well, we could go into that and talk about data sets and fidelity of data, and whether or not investors are actually acting on good data from companies. Maybe talk a little bit about that, and you can and you can weave in what you were referencing.
1: Yeah, Rob, Robin and I just had a conversation um, with a verification company um, that verifies companies' scope one, two, and three emissions, and. It was a little scary to talk to him because he was saying that the majority of companies who even report scope one two and three and we all know um that most of them don't report specifically scope two and scope three um that when they go in and actually verify uh emissions that it's it's really off the majority of the time it's a hundred percent off and uh that small data points can actually uh, create wide swings in emissions And if you just think about that level of data, because most of the time companies are reporting its own emissions, it's filtering through, you know, the MSCI's of the world. And then there are a ton of uh, strategies that are using that as a mechanism um, to think about the transition and saying, okay, you know, we're going to hire, weight a company that is lowering its emissions on an annual basis or relative to its industry. It's, you know, how, how can we do that if we're not sure that that data is verified? So I think that while it's an important data point and we should continue to insist on, um, you know, reporting of data, we, I think as an industry, we should also insist on the verification of that data before we begin to, you know, fully incorporating it as the primary data point for these climate strategies.
0: So if, if I had to rephrase that, it's basically it would be like a bond rating agency that couldn't see the balance sheet or the cash flow statement uh, of the companies it's rating.
1: Yeah, you could. Uh, and, and uh, you investors are
0: could... making and investors are making decisions about you know credit credit decisions based on that. Is that is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I'm just saying that it's still nascent, and um and and we've already sort of jumped ahead of ourselves in making some decisions, and so I I think that it's important to note. But maybe not have you know a wholesale decision be made on that.
2: And also your example is, and also your example is a great one, Ben, because I think the evolution of the space is going to be a lot like the debt ratings agencies. So when you see how it first came out, and if you look at back in the mid or so seventies, you see Fitch, S and P, and Moody's, you could have driven mat truck through all the estimates. I mean, essentially, some companies had A, some companies had C. And then over time, it actually came to some level of convergence because the underlying type factors that they used all converge as well. And that's the biggest issue now with all of these agencies that are doing ESG ratings is they're using tons of different factors. So there's also no congruency over time. So as we get more efficacy on the information, as we get also third party auditing of the information, I think you'll see some type of coming to the same uh, number. But there is alpha to be made in that opportunity set as well, counterintuitively, meaning there's usually information in that spread. It means that the street has also something wrong, and there's some inefficiency there that's not being captured. And that could also be a catalyst for us to take a look at it further and also try and unpack that.
0: And so when I think about the criticism, high level criticism of this kind of strategy, a climate focused strategy, the idea is that you must inevitably give up returns in order to get to exposure to companies that are doing good. What would be your response to that uh, that idea that there's no way that you can have your cake and eat it too in terms of these companies are are are, are good investments that are priced well and can generate alpha, um, ev- you know, and do good and 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 be a part of the climate solution.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it depends on the strategy, on the caking and eating it too, most people who have cake, eat it. <laughs> so um, I really think it depends on the type of strategy, if it's a systematic strategy, um that just is incorporating all climate oriented names, then I think you will have a tough time generating alpha. Um, because it's just a basket of securities that represent a theme, and so there is no real focus on the alpha generation or whether or not these companies um, have the financial flexibility to be able to execute that. You know, if there's most of the time not consideration around valuation either, and so at the end of the day, um, it's just going to be you know the beta of that theme. So the beta, the beta of decarbonization is ultimately what you're getting when you buy these kind of wholesale baskets. Um, that's specifically why we wanted to build a strategy that um, has deep fundamental analysis. And in each step of that fundamental analysis, which Robin can dive into further, you know, we first look at materiality or what we call our materiality paradigm um, where we say, okay, we've we've linked the, climate solution to the company, but how meaningful is it for the company? If it's not meaningful, then you kind of go back to this greenwashing exercise and conversation where, you know, they say they're doing it, but they're not really, and it's not linked to anything kind of material in the financial statements. And so we look at, you know, R&D, we look at revenues, we look at uh, capital expenditures, and that really matters to us. And then, you know, going going all the way through that, we also... um look at uh, linking the climate solution and making that part of the financial catalyst. So if they have that as a business channel, is it going to be profitable? When is it going to be profitable? And is the is the stock price currently valued for that? And so that's really different than just having a strategy that's doing well uh, and doing, you know, doing good it, we don't know if it's going to do well because we're talking about individual companies that all have a different set of parameters. So it, it really depends.
0: In building off of that, maybe Robin, I'll toss this one to you. This podcast is called Compounders and on it, we focus on, on companies that are getting more valuable over time. In your mind, what is the intersection between a compounder and a company that is making a positive impact on climate?
2: Well, wow. I think the first step is to understand is the market being efficient or inefficient in how it prices that security. So that's kind of the underpinning of what we're trying to uncover here. Meaning if the market has already priced in that it's a compounder and it's having an impact and the multiples are showing it accordingly, then there's probably not an alpha opportunity there unless you felt like the market is kind of underdone the power of the compounding, which we see all the time in just in just the normal, you know, way of looking at stocks. Once you identify a climate catalyst or you identify a climate solution, we do a lot of work on the industry. We do a lot of analysis like Porter and SWAT and all the acronyms out there to make sure that it's a viable industry. It can be scaled. It can grow over time. And also the total addressable market is growing. So we have those type of tailwinds that helps us with execution on a company level. And at the company level, we look at, for example, ROIC or, or returns on invested capital over the cost of capital, which to me, if it's a climate-focused type of type of product and they have a mandate to earn or beat their cost of capital, that itself will give the management team a lot of flexibility to compound the value of the company over time, either through dividends or retained earnings or brand value or what have you. So we spend a lot of time unpacking that And it goes back to Heather's earlier point about this not being a check the box exposure exercise. I mean, you already are dealing with a universe of names that are climate friendly, that have actual impact. So you know you're picking off of that list. So it's not that you're making an either or call at the very top of that process. It's already scrubbed to have strong climate impact. That's the first step. The next step is to just a normal type of analysis. is This a good type of business to own. Would you, would you own it for five years? Is it compounding its earnings? Is there a free cash flow there? If we can't answer those questions, we're not going to take the investment in that stock. So that's kind of how we check for compounding at the end of the day.
0: You know, if I put on my analyst hat, I mean, one of the challenges that you have is that you're looking at situations where there could be, you know, exponential growth in certain companies, right? Yeah. But putting that on a spreadsheet and modeling that 10 years out is is, yeah. is going to be fraught. Picking yeah. the winners and losers is going to be fraught. How, yeah. how, Robin, as you've thought about valuing the companies in the portfolio and really, you know, assessing the potential upside, how have you thought about that difficulty of figuring out, you know, how big something, some
2: business line or product is going to be yeah. seven to 10 years hence? What's interesting is uh, the inefficiency that I'm seeing in the space is there's a lot of capital and a lot of press that goes to certain parts. I mean, for example, the EV space or wind or solar, you see a lot of headlines and you see a lot of research being done in those areas. So you see also a lot of hype. You see a lot of companies that IPO and do extremely well. And then a year or two later, they flop and then the stock is down 90 to 95 percent. So and then I see very boring mid-cap, small cap industrial companies in in that in that Ohio or Pennsylvania that actually actually nobody's talking about it and there's no hype and it's not cool and it's massively underpriced. You know, so it goes back to to me at the end of the day, what the market isn't actually pricing and not pricing. Right. And they're not pricing a big part of this, a big part of this data sets. So that's the first step. Can you identify the inefficiency? The next step is any type of valuation you do is essentially uh, the present value of future cash flows. No matter if you do a PE analysis or if you do a discounted cash flow or EBITDA, it all all roads lead to Rome in a way where essentially you're just trying to model out the future cash flows. So your assumptions on new technology, and I see a lot of capital go to the space, uh, those assumptions are very aggressive. Right, which is also why these companies went IPO. So they're assuming very high growth rates. They're assuming a lot of adoption and they're using a lot of modeling to reach there. And we all know from also our business classes uh, that if uh, your terminal value is a big part of the valuation, meaning your future value is a big part of your valuation, you're taking a lot of risk on what uh, interest rates are going to be, what the cost of financing is going to be and how this can actually scale over time. So that's also one of my tests is, is a lot of the value of the company tied out 10, 15 years with a lot of execution risk. And if that's the case, I'm not interested. There's already a lot of capital chasing that, right? If I can find the 10 to 12% earnings growth type of companies that are being also mispriced by the market, I don't have to make a call on what the Fed's going to do or what the interest rate environment is going to be. I know that's pretty pretty also reasonable from an execution standpoint and the market's not pricing it accordingly. So then to me, all roads then lead to that being an attractive name for us to buy.
0: And as I think about this space, you know, I totally get the, there could be underappreciated companies that have divisions or product lines that are gonna be beneficiaries. And, you know, maybe the industrial analysts that cover it don't really understand it. And there's that, I, I get that. But then I also think that maybe there are, businesses that are worth paying up for right that you think that they're inefficient in the other way where like this is this is going to be big and it's going to be way bigger than people think how have you thought about that is that an opportunity set for you as well that you know people people don't just just can't fathom how much bigger this is going to be if the numbers that heather quoted regarding yearly spend are going to be anywhere near
2: accurate absolutely Uh, we do want to see those type of companies we do want to analyze them we just want to make sure there's a path to profitability and especially in this place, uh, in the space, there's a lot of subsidies and a lot of tax breaks that maybe help that hyper growth uh, cycle early on. And once those uh, subsidies are gone, we want to make sure these businesses are viable. right? So we do a lot of analysis on that. Can this be a company that stands on its own two feet with no help from any external entity? right? So that's one test of just making sure that's the case with the growth aspect of it we think the best opportunity set in that space is an actually what we would call quality growth companies or just that growing at a reasonable price we use garb as an acronym uh, for example in some cases in our industry right but i think the whole point behind it is that you want to make sure one the growth is reasonable it can be measured and you understand the data of that growth for example right and the higher up you go on the growth rate as we've all experienced the more uh, there's more volatility on that growth rate so if you're going to shoot the uh, lights out and try for a 20 to 30% grower, odds are pretty high it's not going to do that 20 to 30%. The street kind of overestimates it, and it, and it comes uh, lower than that. We would be interested in those type of companies, and we're finding a lot of those type of companies where there were all these hyper-growth assumptions. The market way overpaid for it. That came back down to earth, but it's still growing a lot more than everything else that we're seeing right? So in a way, it's almost like it got knocked for one year, but the story is still pretty good. And we all know the market can be also extremely impatient. They want quick results. They want to vote early on as opposed to weigh over the future. So the those same type of uh, variables are in place. We just think there's more risk the more you go up that, you know, hyper growth assumptions.
0: Yeah, I'm generally a believer that then this is only an anecdote, but I've seen over my career, there's an there's a point where something is hyper growth and then no longer is that. And it's still too expensive for value, guys. So it's still it's kind of this inefficiency between growth and value or the fa- like fallen angels. And I, I think there's an opportunity there. And, and that would be an example of a bias or any kind of a market, a market inefficiency that, that you could take advantage of. Anything else you can think of in terms of biases or inefficiencies or um you know shortcomings from other investors that that this strategy is designed to to benefit from?
2: Sure. I think if you look at the two ends of the spectrum from the public space to the private space, and there's a lot of capital going into the PE and VC space, for example, that are chasing these new, you know, hyper-growth type of technologies. And we see a lot of portfolios being built on but the private side for that. On the public side, we're seeing a lot of products as Heather alluded to earlier, that you know essentially will give you exposure. And if you look inside the portfolio, then you'll see Apple or Amazon or Microsoft, and they are decarbonizing their operations and they are helping to move the needle with what they're doing internally, but it's not necessarily a climate product that they're offering. They're just decarbonizing internally. So even though you have exposure, You have all other factors there that may impact that stock price and not just and also not just the climate impact aspect. So we see a lot of those products where we don't see product is kind of in this global small to mid cap range. And and also I say global on purpose because there's a lot of there's a lot of focus on U.S. There's a lot of focus on Europe. There should be a lot of focus on what's happening in Asia, for example. And I think that's also being inefficiently priced by the market. And this is we're seeing a lot of interest, for example, a lot, a lot of entities in Japan that are really also moving the needle on climate solutions, which not many of your peers have. So that's a differentiator for us as well, is that we're willing to go globally and look globally, because also climate change is a global issue, it's not just a US issue. So I think the so I think the confluence of that being able to go to the small to mid cap range where there's not much capital going, being able to go global with that view is is also is also a key differentiator for us.
0: And Heather, I'll throw a tough one at you. In that you know you could make the argument that a big oil company or you know, uh, agricultural company, like a, a nitrogen company or something like that, if they were able to reduce their emissions substantially, be far more impactful than than just about, you know, in terms of decarbonization, than, than you know, whatever, Microsoft and all these companies, like which are just basically just office-based businesses in the first place. Yes. Why, you know, if, if impact is the goal and, you know, making one of these companies and helping them decarbonize, um, if if that's part of if, and that would be a really impactful um you know kind of influence why is that is that could that potentially be part of the strategy or is that something that is kind of outside of the scope
1: um it, it probably isn't going to be part of the strategy I think I feel like you're alluding to Exxon as an example and and absolutely as, they decarbonize it is going to have a huge impact. Um, we would rather uh invest in, for example, Exxon supply chain to get there than invest in Exxon itself. And you can and you can sort of apply that thesis to every um large company that you're kind of alluding to. I think too, as um as an investor, you know, clients can have exposure to Exxon anywhere. You can buy that in any index. And so that's the beauty of um, an actively managed portfolio. And so if we just are representing what's already in the universe just because it's doing that, uh, that that's not going to be super attractive, in my opinion, you know, what we kind of represent is um a growth, a growth piece in a broader portfolio. Um, oftentimes, we could represent uh, uncorrelated excess returns. Uh, you know, we think that the growth in the portfolio, you know, as we talked about before, represents like multi-decade uh, secular trend that isn't going anywhere. Decarbonization is going to take a long time. Um, but anyone can buy, you know, an Exxon or or what have you. And I, I think, you know, part of what we're looking for are some of those hidden gems like what Robin alluded to, that people just aren't as aware of or not. That value isn't yet recognized by the market.
0: And Robin, getting back to you, I mean, this is a pretty dynamic environment. You've got a lot of investment, VC, PE, publics, right? And then you've got segments of public companies that are investing in this space, or it's not Un, it's not unknown to people that there's some kind of transition coming, whether that's an energy transition or, you know, kind of a, a climate oriented transition coming. So one of the things that I would worry about if I were you is picking the winners and losers. Like, does this division within Hitachi or Siemens or does this small public company or this, you know, how, how do they how are they going to compete with a VC funded company who are going to be the eventual winners in this? And I'm not suggesting this is a winner take all market. There could be multiple winners, but how have you thought about like the portfolio construction and concentration given you know that it's going to be especially on the climate impact side there's going to be some cone variability in terms of um you know the the growth rates
2: and the success that companies have in this space yes ben i think probably the first step is to take a hippocratic oath in a way and do no harm you know so you want to make sure that You know, any stock that you're buying, there's enough also, not just about the upside, but it's also downside as well. And and you want to make sure that it's an attractive price that you're getting into. So by also doing that, just off classical investing, that will itself hopefully give you a margin of safety if you're wrong on some of your assumptions over a full holding period. And our plan is to not have a high turnover portfolio. So we do a lot of deep and fundamental work and make sure we're buying the right type of quality growth companies. And then it's a waiting game for those, for those companies to compound and also to execute on their plan. So with that type of paradigm, there's a lot of ways to win and there's a lot of ways to be right. You know, one is that company itself is scaling up that climate solution. I mean, uh, for example, Hitachi, you had mentioned uh, what well, they have a smart grid solution, and they actually go into utilities and help to get the grid a lot more efficient. So that's growing exponentially all over the world. We all know about grid outages and what's happening with weather issues and so on and so forth. So not many people know that actually Hitachi does that, and that's going to be a sizable part of their business. So that's kind of an information inefficiency we're trying to capture. So all they have to do is just execute. And once that grows, we're we're essentially early on, that leads to profitability. Hopefully that leads to also, also not just growth in earnings, but growth in the multiple as well, which we haven't really unpacked as well. So there's two ways to win here. Uh, you find a company that's growing earnings that the market's underappreciating. And then you find a company that the market's paying a lower multiple than what they should. And actually, Hitachi's a, a, actually a great example of this. And I'll, also, I've covered the company for close to 25 years. So I've I've gone to see them. I've seen all of the all of the different versions of Hitachi from being the from being the TV fridge company to actually a strong type of climate player now. And the market still hasn't appreciated what they've done as far as transforming themselves. So it's still trading at a pretty good type of discount to book value, for example. So the market's saying it's not going to earn as of capital, which is why it's at a discount to book value. But I'm seeing this growth in smart grid solution. They have They're they're working a lot on electric trains. I mean, there's a lot of very interesting things in there. They have a a, well, they have a blade recycling solution. So if you look at wind turbines, for example, now the average age is getting up there. So these blades have to come out of a false commission. Well, they can also be recycled and put back into the turbine, and they have a solution for that. All of these are ROIC plus type type of businesses. So why is the stock trading under book value? Well, it's because historically, uh, that company has not earned its cost of capital. So unless you do forward analysis on how this is going to grow in scale, assign a profit margin to that, and you can make a case that it should trade at a premium to book value, then it's just a waiting game at the end of the day. And you wait for the market to reach that point.
0: Got it. And, and I know that, and Hitachi is a good example of this, you've looked all around the world for different companies yeah. um, that that have the ability to make an impact. You mentioned Asia. Maybe talk a little bit about geographies where you see more or less inefficiency when it comes to how these companies are being priced.
2: Yes, absolutely. We've seen a lot of efficiency inside of the, I would say inside of the U.S. After the, the after the Biden administration win, and he ran on, you know, also a fairly strong green platform. And then we had the IRA passed as well. We saw a lot of the stocks in the space move extremely well. And they had a nice run, especially if you look at, for example, solar stocks in the the US were some of the, were actually some of the top performers over the past year or two. So the, so the market essentially anticipated that you're going to have a nice move in earnings over the next few years and price the stocks ahead of that actually happening. We saw that inside the US. If you look at Europe, we had, of course, the the Ukraine invasion and just uh, the energy policy and energy security and dependence. And then everything kind of got thrown out of whack. EU came together and I think they've actually done a pretty good job on energy policy and trying to get more energy independent. But the stock prices were all over the place and a lot a lot of volatility, and there was a liquidity issue as well. A lot of capital came out of Europe and came out of those stocks until they were able to figure out, well, how is this going to play out inside of Ukraine? And what's the impact on profitability for a lot of these companies? So then, I don't know, from a macro standpoint, you want to go in there. Because to me, that's additional risk because you have to figure out what's happening in Ukraine, what the EU economic policy is going to be, what the country policy is going to be, and what the adoption rates would be for all these moves to more alternative type of energy sources. That's a lot to figure out and a lot to unpack. So maybe they were cheap for a reason. If you look at Asia, there's to me two parts. One is China, where we all know the geopolitical issues and maybe it's a de facto Cold War I don't know if that might be an aggressive statement but at least we know there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of tension ever since we've had you know I would say for about the last 5 or 6 years now it's just been constant tension between the US and China. So from an investor standpoint and there's a lot of climate activity in action and we know like that the marginal player for a lot of climate solutions come from China or if you look at the or if you look at the whole supply chain of a lot of our climate solution it starts in China, right? Especially also especially raw materials. So you know there's a huge opportunity set for climate, but are you willing to take the are you willing to take the actual top-down or geopolitical risk by having a big weight in China? And then, for example, an outlier event happens and there's some type of capital flow issue, or or also Chinese ADRs could be delisted, or they may force an index to lower their China weight. And we all know that, especially in emerging markets, there's a lot of there's a lot of ex China products, meaning they're making that call and saying we want exposure to non US, but We don't want china so we're seeing capital flows out even though it's attractive from a climate standpoint what's really interesting is the other parts of asia so for example japan and south korea and taiwan i think are very interesting and of course taiwan still has a china issue and we're all trying to unpack how that's going to play out so you need to be very cautious on that and you mostly have a semiconductor industry which you can argue is climate friendly or not because they use a lot of power and water then you go to South Korea, which essentially has beaten, you know, I would say Japan for the EV race. And now they're a huge player in batteries and they're doing a lot of things in wind. And there's a lot of policy initiatives that are really helping out. So South Korea, very interesting. What's most interesting is actually Japan. And it's been a country that's essentially been ignored by the market. You know, they used to call it widowmakers trade uh, for many years. You would try to get upside in Japan and it would just be flat. And then you were kind of hoping for an interest rate move and it never happened. And yeah, you know, I would say for the last eight or nine years, I've been seeing a lot of positive trends happen there. And you get exposure to China and Asia without those without having to unpack all the, the geopolitical issues that I've been talking about. So then you get that growth rate. I get these companies, also like Hitachi, that's under book value. You get growth in climate solutions and you get actual impact. So it checks off all the boxes for us, which is why we have an overweight in Japan right now.
0: And Heather, I think one of the most interesting things I learned when, when we first talked about and we first talked about the strategy is the desire to marry the quantitative and the qualitative um, in a way that makes this firm different. So maybe talk a little bit about that original vision and, and how you're implementing that, you know, the, like a quantitative process with this very qualitative work that, that Robin's doing as well.
1: Yeah. So, um, I would say that the primarily where the quantitative piece comes in is through the construction of the universe and then through the ranking process of the screening. And then from there, that provides a really attractive platform by which to choose uh, stocks from a fundamental analysis standpoint. So I alluded to the 3000 companies that we had chosen just to kind of take a step back. I think one of, um, Something that's missing in our industry is that uh, mostly things are not science led. Uh, And so we wanted to to start by taking a science led approach, even how we are uh, thinking about and quantifying climate solutions. And so uh, we use two open sources that I would recommend to anyone. Uh, One is called Project Drawdown, who we have a relationship with. Um, they are, um, I think, one of the most well-respected NGOs that focuses on the most impactful climate solutions globally. Um, and and then we also focus on Crane Tool, which is a more granular set of solutions that pairs very well with... Um, and, and that, in aggregate, is about 300 climate solutions. And what we decided to do is focus only on the solutions that are both economically viable, because this is an investment process. And we talked about concessionary before. So we're looking at economic viability, we're looking at scale. And then we're also looking at currently impactful. So there are a lot of solutions that are out there that just are not currently impactful, they're still, they're still very much in the R&D phase. And um, a lot of what, you know, we don't talk about is the time value of carbon, which is that, Um, carbon removed or reduced from the atmosphere today is far more impactful than carbon removed or reduced from the atmosphere 10 or 20 years from now because of the compounding effect. Um, And that's really important when thinking about emissions. And so we assigned um, both the time value of uh, carbon to each one of the solutions in addition to uh, emission reduction potential, meaning how impactful would it be if this climate solution were scaled uh, globally, let's just say at anywhere between 50 to 75% all the way through to 2050. And so those are the some of the things that we're applying specifically to climate solutions and then mapping that to the to the companies in the portfolio and also in the universe. So we start with the universe obviously whittles down into the portfolio, but but that's where we're really starting. Um, and then from a screening mechanism, uh we we continue to apply uh those data points. So we we absolutely plot apply some of the financial factors to our screening mechanism to rank. Um, it's not it's not a stock selection tool, but it is a way to to you know whittle. Um, and then we we apply time value of carbon. Uh, we very much care about um emission reduction potential. And last but definitely not least, we're looking at sustainable revenues. And so um we are linking uh climate solutions revenues to individual companies. And that's something I don't think anyone else is doing probably because it's so hard uh, because that's not really how companies are reporting. They don't report generally based on their climate solutions revenues. They're not saying, okay, here, this is, you know this is where electric trains are. This is what Hitachi does. And so it does require um, a little bit of thought and we we kind of marry that with MSCI sustainable revenues to create more of a scope for focused um, uh, process.
0: And Robin, when so you have this universe, how in the world do you get that into you know a portfolio that is manageable and doesn't have two hundred stocks? What what has what that process been like for you?
2: Well, we wanted to start with a global product, Ben, and we wanted to make it all cap. So we wanted to make sure all of our names could be scaled, you know, as we grow in assets. We do not want to buy very small cap companies and then end up owning a lot of it, you know, as we grow in assets. So the first first filter was anything under. 250 million US and cap gone, we're not interested. We also did a float screen and, and also make sure even though the cap was high, that the float was also high, not to get too technical, but if if there's free float availability of the shares, you can buy it and, and you can actually scale it. So some companies have high market cap, but very low float. So it looks smaller than, than it actually is. And we see this a lot of non-US names, for example. So that criteria itself, if you do those factors, cut our universe down from close to 3000 to about close to 1500. So that automatically just cut it in half. And then we wanted to make sure since it's going to be a quality growth portfolio that we really lean into the, we, lean, we have to lean into the financial flexibility aspect of it. So we try to unpack also debt and leverage. So we used and not to get too granular, we used EBIT coverage, which is earnings prior to interest and in, off taxes. I mean, meaning essentially, you know, are you able to make your debt payments every month? Like a lot like a credit card bill, you get at the end of the month and, and all do you have the cash flow to make that payment at the end of the month? So anything under two and a half times that we called and said, all right, well, they're on the fence when it comes to debt, they may have high debt to equity, they may have floating rate debt, which is not great right now from just the way interest rates have gone. And, and also that bill may also come due in the next year or two. So we called those out of the mix as well. We also noticed that there were certain areas of the world where there were a lot of companies doing the exact same thing. So, for example, in China, there are over 50 solar PV companies, the photovoltaic uh, companies that are small cap. Well, we don't need to screen on all 50. So we did some further analysis and said, all right, here are the top top five or 10 that we should be looking at. We'll keep the others in inventory and just kind of see how it's going. That process itself also lowered our list down to about 550 names. And that's where we apply the multi-factor ranking process that Heather had alluded to earlier. So a combination of fundamental and climate factors, we weigh them half and half, we rank, and that comes down to about 150 names. So those are the top ranked names of our entire 3000 stock list. That's where we dive in and do the fundamental work on. So these names are already scrubbed for a lot of things that hopefully will increase your batting average, meaning it's already strong from a financial standpoint, it's strong from a climate standpoint, don't have to worry about the debt, don't have to worry about, you know, essentially low exposure to climate solutions. All that's already called. So we feel like we're also picking from a pretty good uh, list of names. And then it becomes a portfolio uh, construction exercise. Well, of the 150, we're building a 40 to 50 stock portfolio. You want to be diversified. You want to understand exposure. You want to understand risk. And it's not just exposure from a country or sector standpoint, as we traditionally would think about, but also exposure from a climate standpoint. Meaning, are we too overweighted in wind? Are we too underweighted in solar? Where's where's the opportunity set right now? I mean, should we be looking at insulation, for example, which is a great kind of solution that I have geeked out on for about a month now? It's very interesting and nobody's talking about it. So we're a little overweight in insulation, right? But we want to make sure that we understand that from a portfolio exposure standpoint. And, and also that's how we call the portfolio.
0: And and Heather, one of the challenges that I see with growing this strategy is figuring out, is is the allocators figuring out where to place it. And, you know, we live in a world that's obsessed with benchmarks. How have you thought about selecting a benchmark that can even come close to replicating what you're trying to achieve so that you can show your partners, like, this is how we're doing relative to something?
1: Yeah, we thought, we've thought deeply about benchmarks. we actually have the ability because of the platform that we've built to create our own index and benchmark, and we have. Um, that said, you know, we we felt it was probably best not to use our own index as a benchmark, but we do have that if allocators want to see that, because it could be a good way to think about systematic, just a systematic set of portfolios, kind of what we were talking about before versus really a stock selection tool. Um, and fundamental analysis, obviously, active management. Um, we use the MSCI all country world only as a reflection of what others are doing. Um, because at the end of the day, allocators are just going to use that. And so I think they want to know how we're going to deviate from that. And we want to acknowledge that. Um, and then we we talk to pretty much every provider out there to see if, if they have a climate solution index. And, so far, we've only found one company that does, that really uh, reflects the universe in an interesting way. MSCI does not have it. Um, neither does Wilshire. Uh, but there is a company called iClima. And we're in discussions with them. And and we do look at how um, we sort of rank relative to iClima as a secondary benchmark. Uh, and so if if clients want to see that iClimb is 100% focused on decarbonization, similar to us, um, they just don't have that stock selection uh, piece of it. And they they mostly are, you know, systematic oriented. And so that's that's what we've done up to this point. But it's, I think it's an evolving space. And if you actually look at all of the um, impact-oriented strategies out there, majority of them just use a regular benchmark. Um, and so there's a little bit of a disconnect there from an industry standpoint. Um, which I think will continue to evolve.
0: And the the other problem you have is not just the benchmark, but is buckets, like who do you talk to at an allocator, Do you talk to the public equities people, do you talk to the YALT's people like, is there an ESG group specifically? So as as you're approaching potential clients, where how are you trying to position this strategy? and, And what bucket of capital do you think is available to you?
1: I would say there are two paths and two different types of allocators that we look at. We could absolutely talk to an alternatives team and sometimes we do. Um, But I would say that major- the majority of time we're either talking to the equity person uh or we're talking to the ESG slash climate person or sometimes it's both. Uh, because oftentimes uh, you'll see allocators now um, doing that, where they have they do have maybe a, a sustainable investment person in there, and that person is responsible for all asset classes. Um, in terms of where uh, we have been fitting as we talking to different uh, potential clients and clients, it's either just as a core satellite. So some of the things that we were talking about before, um, we're going to look uncorrelated to a benchmark. And that's really interesting from a growth perspective. And so it doesn't necessarily You know, we think that the product that the strategy is going to stand on its own, regardless of whether the allocator is focused on impact. That's something that we're focused on. But um, we still think that we're going to be able to generate really attractive returns. And we would put our portfolio next to any traditional portfolio out there that's global as well Um, and, and could be a great pair as well. And then the other pieces are, you know, we talked about before, there are a lot of allocators that have committed to net zero. And there are there are really three ways to go about doing that. The first is by incorporating it um, from a risk perspective. And that's what a lot of um allocators are just thinking about okay, what kind of climate risk do I have in my overall portfolio? Do I want to divest? Yes, no. Uh, Do I want to engage or hire a manager who's engaging? And then, you know, the last piece is really where we fit in, which is the investment, the investment opportunity and offsetting some of your other um, strategies with a strategy like this, that is a hundred percent, you know, quote unquote, net zero.
0: And Robin, you've talked a little bit about Hitachi. I would love to hear an example of what you think the quintessential scope for investment is. So maybe, maybe a couple minutes on, you know, what, like if I had to say, what in your portfolio checks every box possible for what scope is trying to achieve which one would that be
2: gosh man it's like asking me also what my favorite child would be <laughs> you know it's like i love all the names in the portfolio you know i lo- and also i love them equally but yeah but also as orwell said also some animals are more equal than others right so in this case i would say <laughs> There's probably a name like a Generac, which we have a huge weight on inside of our portfolio. That's one of our top holdings. And it's about an 8 billion cap. So it's in that mid-cap industrial space. You probably have heard the brand before. They make home standby generators. And it's not historically a name that was traditionally held by climate funds. It wasn't necessarily that climate box. But once we unpacked it and and looked at what they were doing, uh, for example, they purchased Echobee, which is a smart Uh, smart thermostat type of solution, and they bought also a solar and storage solution. And now they're going into home and offering the full suite of energy, you know, energy savings, energy efficiency, and also home storage products. So so they want to be a climate company and they're actually growing accordingly. So if you look at the backwards looking type of measures, it's not really going to show that, right? So you have to really unpack what they've done right now at this point in time and what they want to be in five years. And it's the market appreciating that. And this stock was a darling during COVID times is because a lot of people were staying at home. And I think it was probably a meme stock at some point in time as well. It did extremely well. And then, of course, with just, you know, with just all things also also coming back to normal, it plummeted. And it's, I think, a third of what it was at the top. Right. So we feel like with just all the things happening. So they were able to transform themselves and do all of this stuff while the market was actually selling off the stock, which. I thought was very interesting because there are all these there's all these shareholder attributive activities happening as the stock is also coming down, which means that the shareholder base is changing and it's going from the quick profit day trader crowd to hopefully now the more long term oriented funds crowd that really look at valuation and also look into the future over the next few years. So that's a name I think that could be really interesting. Uh, the key data point to know for them is only about 5 percent of homes in the U.S. have backup power. And we know that grid failures inside of the U.S., well, just look at what's happening this summer. You turn on the news and you see all sorts of grid failures. That's growing, unfortunately, 25 to 30% a year is the stat that we've seen as far as growth rates on grid failures. So it means at some point uh, there's going to be more than 5% of homes inside the the U.S. that will go to a backup power type of solution. And Generac has 80% of that market. So even if the addressable market goes from 5% of homes or just the just the actual capture, if it goes to 6%, that's close to a 50% increase in their sales. If it just goes up uh, to one percentage point, and we think it can go up a lot higher than that. And now they're not just also selling a generator, they're also selling a full home solution. So they're selling Ecobee and the solar product and storage and all those things on top of the generator. So now it's a full suite of product. So we think this company is really primed for future growth and also a lot of profitability from them.
0: Well, you're preaching to the choir, I, I should mention for full disclosure that I own Generac and, and, oh, okay. and share share a lot of those views. Um, okay. Maybe maybe as we're winding down, Heather, a couple of questions for you um, about the firm and the outlook for the firm. I'm interested in, you know, culture is a very, very important topic on this podcast and we talk about it consistently. Uh, you know, you've been at a number, both of you guys have been in a number of different investment firms. I'm interested in in what the cultural elements that are the most important to you as you're building an investment firm.
1: Yeah, I, that's a good question. I would say um, I would say transparency is probably the most important element at our firm, and um, and honesty. Uh, I I know that a buzzword in today in today's world is diversity, equity, inclusion, and now we have the B, which is belonging. Um, I also think it's kind of a buzzword that often just doesn't get applied to a variety of different firms because it's hard to have transparency at a large organization, uh, to be able to come to the workplace, uh, you know, be yourself and also get the job done. And so um, a huge just piece of what Robin and I continue to try to foster on a regular basis is being transparent with each other, having uh, tough questions with each other, continuing to have intellectual curiosity and honesty with one another and challenging each other in a, um, in a way that continues to instill trust, but pushes each other to be better. Um, so, so we have a super high, um, bar for what we consider to be excellence. And I think that because we're so transparent with one another and we both have, um, a high degree of, you know, how we want to be excellent, what that means. And we're able to have really amazing conversations and continue to grow at a pretty rapid pace in a way that oftentimes just is not able to happen at really large organizations because there's so much um, bureaucracy. And oftentimes, um, you know, there's just not a lot of transparency, things are are kind of happening behind the scenes. Um, So that's, I would say, um, probably the most important element. The second piece is um fun or play, and those two things are a little bit different, right? Having fun together, kind of being silly and laughing with one another is not unfortunately something that happens a whole lot in the investment community. I think we all take ourselves a little bit seriously. Um, I would say we're not we're not curing cancer even though maybe we're trying to solve a few of the world's problems. Um, but but that is always useful and any I think firm is just rem- remembering to have fun and laugh and be a little bit silly. And then when I talk about play, I also mean it's okay to get things wrong initially um, and and just like getting okay with just trying out a few things or playing into something to see what sticks rather than being nervous that if you try something, it's not going to work initially. And I think that we don't do enough of that and it allows for um, a lot more creativity and a lot more innovation, which is something that I think is also lacking in the investment community generally, especially relative to the rest of the world.
0: And since this podcast is called Compounders, um, we, we, we traditionally focus on companies that can compound, but it's also true that, you know, you want to build an investment firm that gets more valuable over time. So, you know, Heather, maybe talk a little bit about w- what an investment firm looks like that does get more valuable over time and how you build that, and then maybe give us your thoughts on, you know, what would look like success to you if we were if we were sitting here five years from now reviewing this discussion?
1: Um, I, you know, as we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, um, we do think that decarbonization is one of the few bright spots in this low growth world and is going to continue to be. Um, what we really care about is absolutely asset growth, but also being well respected in the space. And um, I think something that differentiates us is there just aren't very many investment firms that are focused only on decarbonization. And so what you might see is. Us building out a suite of equity products, just given the platform that we've built from the universe, we have the ability to do that. We have the ability to, um, to address the need of the market in our clients. They may not want to invest in a global strategy. They may want to invest in other things. And so, you know, having the capability to do that and then execute that for our clients, I think, um, you know, the more our industry matures, the more that, um, uh, that you need to sort of address the needs of the market on an individual basis rather than just kind of throwing things at the wall. And so that's something that we take into consideration. Um, So we have also talked about over the long-term building out a multi-asset boutique that addresses climate because while it's really important in public equity markets, we think that there are different aspects across the board that are important In the fixed income landscape, I was just talking, for example, to an insurance company, and they're focused on uh, climate and decarbonization, but more on the public fixed income space. You know, I think that there is and continues to be opportunities in private equity and venture capital and private debt as well. And depending on which solution you're looking at and thinking about, you know, we really didn't talk a whole lot, for example, about land and ocean sinks in um, agriculture. But that's a little bit of a harder area to address, I think, in public equity markets specifically. And so that might be some areas that we would expand in other asset classes
0: Robin, in five any, years. Anything, <laughs> you know, uh, any, I'll give you the closing, the, the the ability to close on that. Any, any, any addition to that? Anything, any, any other way that you, any additional way that you, that you would look to be successful and and, and define success for yourself in the firm?
2: i would say to have proprietary ip something that is special or unique or different uh, that we're trying to, to create that's ours from the ground up and uh we want to take two paths there one we want ip on all of our climate solutions you know uh, the uh, the economics of it how can it be scalable over time who the players are private, private and also public and that also leads to product as heather had mentioned If you if you also create that ip and you understand how you think this is going to play out then the product is just the end result of that whether it's public private equity or fixed income so that's one area then we want to know our companies really well so we want to just be able to build so i'm a big fan of kaizen you know the the japanese term for continuous improvement so we think we have a really strong foundation of of also data and implementation we want to build on that from here so i'd be very happy in five years from now that evolves and grows and improves, and we learn, and we go back and we fix, and we and we measure accordingly. So, so you know, understand. Go deep, and then execute by product, and then in five years, I think that the market will do what it does. I mean, we, we really. Yeah, we can't control what the Fed's gonna do, what's gonna happen in geopolitics. What we can control is the quality of our work and how in depth we do it and just you know also how much fun we have, like Heather mentioned. All right. So if five years from now, if we can do all that, I'll be a happy camper.
0: Well, Heather and Robin, this has been great. I think you articulated quite well and in, you know, in 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 pretty, pretty good depth, what's differentiated about the strategy, what's differentiated about the approach and, and what you're trying to build. So uh, thanks for being on Compounders. And and we're all going to be looking forward to seeing uh, what this firm does look like in five years.
1: Thanks, Ben. We really enjoyed it. Appreciate it.
2: Appreciate your time, Ben. Thank you.
0: And for full disclosure, Scope 4 is a Hitachi shareholder.